Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series called Gift Exchange. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. I want to give out a shout-out to my friend Joey Thrutchley over there who's just coming in. He asked me to give him a shout-out at the Christmas Eve service. Thanks for joining us this morning, Joey. Chris and Shannon, I'm praying for you guys up there. I know, there you are. <laughs> Love these guys. Ezekiel 36, we're going to start in verse 16, and this will be the last of our sermon series that I've entitled Gift Exchange. If I said the name Daniel Rudiger, you guys know who I'm referring to? Daniel Rudiger was a a small-town boy who grew up in small-town Indiana. His father worked at a factory. And he wanted nothing more to do in life than to play football for the University of Notre Dame. Lights going off. You and I know him as Rudy. It was probably one of my favorite sports movies of all time. The problem with Rudy, of course, is he's got a heart the size of this world and universe, but his athletic ability is terrible. Uh, He doesn't have the finances to stay at the University of Notre Dame. He doesn't have the physical ability to compete at that level of football with the greatest football players at the college level in the nation, nor is he capable of uh, financially affording tuition at Notre Dame. Uh, Everything is, is really stacked against him. And when Rudy somehow, miracle of all miracles, makes the practice squad at Notre Dame, everybody is just amazed, they're, they're completely shocked. And his inspiration and his, his life is, is uh, motivation for those who just can try harder, can dig down deep and give their everything, give their whole heart for a cause. One of my favorite lines in the movie, uh, it comes from Charles Dutton. And if you guys know Charles Dutton, all the um, movies that he acts in, he's one of my favorite actors. But he, he just has this conversation with him when he doesn't go to the last practice He didn't make the the squad to dress up for the final game as a University of Notre Dame football player and student, and he's so defeated that he decides to quit the team on the last day of practice. And Dutton's character looks at him and he says, so you didn't make the squad, you didn't make the sideline. There are bigger tragedies in life. But then he says, you're five foot nothing, you weigh a hundred and nothing pounds, and you don't have a speck of athletic ability in you. And that's Rudy. He really doesn't. He doesn't deserve to be on the field with those guys. But one of my favorite scenes in this movie, the one I keep going back to over and over again, that one that really stirs my emotions in my heart, is he's in a practice, it's like the year before his final year, and it's the last practice of that season before he comes back for the next season, the next fall, next summer. And he's playing 110% at practice all the time. Like, given everything that he has. This is the last practice of the season. He's playing, and this, this pitch goes to one of the running backs. He catches it, and Rudy comes by, and he just, he just levels him. And this kid, this scholarship athlete, 
who deserves to be on Notre Dame, is, is angry. He throws the ball at him, starts pushing him and shoving him, calling him names like, what are you doing, man? This is the last day of practice. You don't have to go 110%. And the coach walks over and he's, and he's just like, what is going on with you? Speaking to this, college, this scholarship athlete, like, what's your problem? And he says, this guy's playing like every single practice is the Super Bowl. This is the end of the year. Well, lighten up a little bit. And the coach looks at him, it's, it's coach, coach Parsegian uh, from Notre Dame history. And he says, that one sentence has just described your entire collegiate career. He says, if you had a tenth of the heart of Rudiger, you'd be an All-American, but you don't. I wanna talk about one last exchange as we think about the gifts that we exchange with Christ at Christmas time. And of course, we've been in this, this sermon series called Gift Exchange. We looked at several things that we exchange with God the second that we place our faith in Him. We exchange our ashes, our death, for His beauty and life. We exchange the imprisonment that we have because of sin for freedom and for redemption. We exchange our faint spirits for His garments of praise. But I'm, I'm constantly shocked when I look at Scripture at how Jesus is so consumed with the heart. He's constantly talking about the heart. A lawyer comes up to him and asks him, Jesus, what is the most important commandment in all of the Old Testament, all the commandments? You remember what Jesus said? The important, most important commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your what? With all your heart. He comes to a, a Pharisee, and he says, you guys honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. He says things to the disciples like, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. But perhaps no section of scripture is, is more definitive and instructive on the human heart than Jeremiah 17, verse nine. It says something like this. There's a part of us that we struggle to understand, a part of our being that is deceitful above all things. It's the human heart. Who can understand it? Over and over again, what the Bible will teach us, what the gospel teaches us, is that we don't just need to be better people. We don't need to just think differently about life and about God. We don't need to just turn the, over a new leaf and, and make better decisions in life. We don't even need a better past or a better family to grow up in. What scripture says is that in order for us to have a right relationship with God, we need a completely new heart. A heart that's been transformed by the truth of the gospel and by the power of Christ. And so to finish this sermon series out, I'd like to jump to the prophet Ezekiel, look at chapter 36. We're gonna look at verses 16. We'll go all the way through verse 28 here. We're gonna kind of cut it off in the middle of a paragraph. And we're gonna see how God exchanges our sinful past for a very hopeful future. But the most predominant theme of Ezekiel 36 is this change of heart, this new transformed heart that God gives to us by the power of his Holy Spirit. In Dante's Divine Comedy, there's a section 
where he depicts hell as having an inscription above the gates. And it says this, leave behind all hope, you who enter here. But perhaps my favorite quote on hope comes from Tim Keller and how he describes the gospel. He says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. Hope is a a powerful theme in scripture. Hope is something that grips our hearts especially as we look at this passage in Ezekiel 36. Now, before we get here, it's, it's hard to jump into uh, these books just out of nowhere and not get somewhat of the context and what's going on in this prophet Ezekiel, especially these Old Testament books. So let me describe a little bit about what's happening in Ezekiel. Um, Israel had just gone into exile from the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar came in 586, rode into Jerusalem. He overcame the city. He took it for himself, and he took all the people there as slaves to be exiles in Babylon. Ezekiel is unique among the prophets because he is, in fact, one of the major prophets, meaning that he foretold and kind of had that prophetic message for the people of Israel to, to repent and to turn back from God and that he would give them hope and rescue them from their, their sin and their, and their plight. However, Ezekiel is not only a prophet, he is also a priest. There's many passages in the prophet Ezekiel that talk about the temple and the glory of God in the temple. And so when we pick up in Ezekiel chapter one, he has this dream by the river Kadar, and he is in fact in captivity in Babylon. And he sees the glory of the Lord that was once residing in the temple in Jerusalem It's no longer there anymore. Now the glory of the Lord is actually in Babylon. And he is overtaken by the glory of the Lord. God's presence among his people. But he has this this thought and this question in his mind is how is this glorious presence of God manifesting itself not in Jerusalem in the temple where it should be and is in here in Babylon instead? Well, the first part of Ezekiel answers that question. In Ezekiel 1 through 11, there are accusations against Israel because of their idolatry. God is going to remove his special presence from his temple in Jerusalem, and he is going to take it away from there. Ezekiel is is shocked. He's dumbfounded. He can't believe how God would ever do this, but it's because of the people's idolatry. They sinned against him, and so he removes his presence. In chapters 12 through 24, You have oracles of judgment against Israel. In chapters 25 through 32, there's oracles of judgment against all the nations. It's not just Israel that stands guilty and condemned before God, but all those who don't align themselves with God's Messiah, with the Christ, stand judged already as well. The key to to Ezekiel is, is really when you get to chapter 33. In chapter 33, the whole chapter is going to focus on Jerusalem in the temple. And it talks about how the Babylonians rode in there and annihilated everything. It's one of the most hopeless, dark chapters that you'll read in all of the Old Testament. This is the one event in Israel's history that was the hardest for them to swallow. 
This is the one thing that they couldn't wrap their minds and hearts around concerning God. How could he, their God, remove his presence from his city, Jerusalem, that we've all been a part of this in the past? And all of it begs a really important question. Is God done with Israel? The city is destroyed. The temple has been razed to the ground. Is there any hope left for God's people? Is there any future for the people of Israel? As you get into the last half of the book and the last, really the last third of it, he answers that question with a resounding no. I am not done with my people Israel. Chapters 34 through 37 depict hope for Israel. Uh, sometime we will do a sermon series on these chapters in the book and just focus on them. They're so powerful, they're so deep, and they're so significant. Chapters 38 through 39 depict hope for the nations, for all of those who desperately need Christ. Chapters 40 through 48 give hope for all of creation. Chapter 36 is, is this section I really wanna focus on and, and dive into it more detail this morning. And, and it follows right after chapter 34, which is one of my all-time favorite chapters in all of scripture. It talks about the ministry of, of the shepherds of Israel. And it says, in hope, God's about to do a new thing. And he's gonna start by raising a new king, a new Messiah in Israel. He will come and he will give hope to the people. It meshes very nicely with chapter 36. It talks about being a, a new David who gives us a brand new heart that can know God, can trust him, and can love him in a different way. There's a few things right away that I want to talk about that establish the context and, and that really bring this message home for us this morning, even before we get into the details. There's no person's past that is so horrific that is beyond the hope of God. I think in, in America especially, we struggle so much to see happiness, hope, and comfort in our circumstances. What God's doing for us right here and right now, that when things aren't going well for us, we go to this hopeless state of existence. There's no past that's so dark and so torn. There's nothing that you could ever do that can take you out of God's reach and out of his hope for the future. When it comes to God, no matter what you've done, it can be, and in fact, according to scripture, it will be redeemed. Remember what 1 Peter 3, or chapter one, verse three says, excuse me. In God's mercy, he has called us to be born again to a, a dead hope, no, to a, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If God can raise a dead man from the grave, then he can give hope to any circumstance, to any situation, to any person, no matter what they've experienced, no matter what they're going through. The famous quote from Corey Ten Boom, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. That's the message of Ezekiel for the people of Israel by application to us. Number two, hope is not just something we ponder in the mind, hope is something that penetrates the heart. Hope is something that doesn't just affect the way that we think. It affects who we are, what we do, and the way we live our life. And that's exactly what we're going to start out and talk about here in Ezekiel. Look down at your text. I'm going to read starting in verse 16. Ezekiel 36, verse 16. 
says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. And you might make special note of those two things, their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. And so I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that she had in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. Verse 19, I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and they yet had to go out of this land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. As the section opens up, God begins, and he's extremely angry with Israel for two reasons. They were angry because of their ways and their deeds. This is kind of just like the phrase room and board in summary fashion. This would include all of the things that we need to, to have a place and things to eat, right? When you talk about packers and cheese, this summarize, summarizes everything that is good in life, period, about Wisconsinites, period, and we need to focus on that as well. In summary fashion, God says that Israel has defamed the name, profaned the name of Israel by their ways and their deeds. Some of your translations will say something a little bit different there. Some of them will say behavior and deeds. Actually, the Hebrew word for way is derek. It's pronounced. By the way, derek is uh, taking a couple of weeks off. He's in Alaska right now. He went up to Alaska on Christmas Day to come there. So you guys pray for Derek and Rachel, our music, music folks over here. The, the Hebrew word Derek, typically when you read it in, um, as a noun in the Old Testament, it means something like journey. As a verb, you would read it as to journey or to walk, maybe even to tread. It's often depicted, there's a word picture for this word in the Hebrew. It's often depicted by a Hebrew archer when they are stringing their bow for battle, the first thing they do is they take their foot and they press on that bow so they can bend it and string the string to the top of it, right? This word derrick is literally placing your foot upon or bending your foot toward. Israel sinned everywhere that they placed their foot. Everything about their lifestyle, their way, was sinful before God. And it leads to this really bloody metaphor, actually at the end of verse 17, right? Brings up a, a very important aspect of, of shedding blood in the Old Testament. You guys might make a special note and, and just put this in the back of your mind in terms of uh, the significance of blood in the Old Testament. Leviticus 17 verse 11 is a very important verse. It says this, for the life of every living thing is in the blood, 
for the life of every living thing is in the blood. So I myself have assigned it to you on the altar to make atonement for your lives, for the blood makes atonement by means of life. In the Bible, blood is a, a precious means of life. It keeps life going, it keeps us breathing, it keeps us sustained in life. Therefore, any discharge of blood would make a person unclean. Or if you came in contact with blood, you were unclean. Everything an unclean person touched, for whatever reason, became unclean in Israel, and in the culture, and in the time. Israel is being described as an unclean people group that has a discharge of blood contacting everything that they come in contact with. By default, it becomes unclean because they're unclean. But notice this, notice the sin that's specifically mentioned in verse 18. Back at verse 18. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols which, which they had defiled it. Listen, God isn't angry with Israel because they broke the Ten Commandments, or they broke the laws, although that's true in this context. Neither is he angry because they had made bad choices. That's also true. By mentioning idolatry, we learn that there's a much deeper issue going on. There's a much deeper issue of the heart that's going on in this context. At its core, all sin is an act of stealing. All sin is an act of idolatry. Whenever we sin, we worship something or someone other than God. That, in effect, is what it means to be an idolater. Paul Tripp put it this way, every sinner is in some kind of way a worship thief. We steal worship that belongs to God, and we give it to someone or something else instead. The people of Israel had committed idolatry. They were worshiping someone or something that wasn't God. And because of it, everything that they touched, every place that they went with their feet, everything that they did became unclean. It became sinful. And so what did God do as a result of their idolatry? And the answer is that he scattered them among the nations. He took them out of the land that he had given them for their inheritance as a gift to them. Nevertheless, God's anger won't last forever. This isn't the last word with God. His anger and sin is never the last word with God. In fact, God is going to be the one that initiates their redemption and their hope and forgiveness. Uh, look down at, at verse 22. Again, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I want you to just look for these two words, I will, I will, throughout this context. God is going to be the initiator and he's going to be the one who procures hope. He's gonna be the one who does something for the Israelites that they cannot do for themselves. In verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes, before their eyes. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations. I'll gather you. Verse 25, I will sprinkle water on you. 
Verse 26, I will give you a new heart. I will put it within you. I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will, verse 27, put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and be faithful to me as you haven't in the past. God will put his way as anger. He won't remain angry with Israel forever, and he does it for one reason, and one reason only. It's the same reason that any of us can, can say that we have everlasting life in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's by his grace and his grace alone. God is the one that initiates this. God is the one that gives them the grace that they don't deserve. He is the one who loves them. He is the one who is merciful to them. And he is ultimately the one in which their hope will reside. Because hope is in a person in the Bible. And it is steadfast and he is unwavering. Number one, God will put away his anger. Number two this morning, God will purify our hearts. I want us to get back now, now and read, uh, pick up this in verse 25. All right, speaking of these I wills, continue this passage, verse 25 through 28. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey all my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your forefathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. You guys uh, know these movies that occur every year at Christmas time? You turn on the TV, it seems like they're there all the time. Does anybody know why Wizard of Oz is one of those movies that shows? You guys watch Wizard of Oz this year at Christmas? Why do, why do they show Wizard of Oz every year? Is there like a Christmas scene in there or something? I don't know about. No? Am I the only one that's watched seeing Wizard of Oz Christmas time? Maybe I am. Maybe I'm crazy. Wouldn't be the first time. It's all good. Uh, Wizard of Oz, is, it's a very interesting, interesting story, right? Especially if you're a Pink Floyd fan. Uh, you've, got, you've got three friends that come and meet Dorothy. You've got the cowardly lion. And what does the cowardly lion want from the wizard? Courage. Thank you for rolling the R. Yeah, this, is, this is great, Sherry. Appreciate that. Mine was pathetic. Yours was way, way better. You've got the scarecrow. What does the scarecrow need? It needs a brain. Then you've got the tin man. What does the tin man ask the wizard for? A completely new heart. It's really significant. I want you to hold your place in Ezekiel 36. I want you to turn to John chapter 3, just real quick. John chapter 3. I'll summarize this a little bit at the end of this passage, and then we'll a couple points of application. Just another ADD moment up here. Did you guys see the game on Christmas? It's a Christmas miracle that they won it. As I was, I was reminded that they shouldn't have won that game, Green Bay. But they did, they won it. Felker, we're going, man. Super Bowl this year. Rodgers, it's gonna be awesome. If you guys are wondering what's going on up here, just don't worry. 
There's a lot of weird, weird things. John chapter three. You might put a, a reference to John three in Ezekiel 36. If you write in the margins of your Bible, this is a really important passage. John chapter three, Jesus is speaking with one of the Pharisees. His name is Nicodemus. And he says some really hard things to, to Nicodemus. Very interesting. Pick it up in verse one. John chapter three, verse one. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. He said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus has no clue what Jesus is talking about. How can a man be born again when he is old? Verse 4. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is an interesting statement. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus still doesn't get it. How can these things be? Jesus, listen, man, you're a teacher of Israel, and you don't know one of the most central concepts related to the grace and mercy and the forgiveness of God that comes from the most central, hopeful passages in your Old Testament scriptures, Ezekiel 36. And so he explains it to him. If you're going to be born again, just like physical birth, flesh gives birth, birth to flesh, water gives birth through water, the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives life. It's the spirit who takes our old hearts of stone and replaces them with a heart of flesh that is soft for the things of God. It's the spirit's work, the spirit that God gives to us as a free gift of his grace that takes the old, worn-out, sinful aspects of who we are without Christ and renews it and creates something completely different and completely transformed. It's the spirit works that takes a heart of stone and makes it a soft heart of flesh. Turn back to Ezekiel 36 here. We'll finish this up. Verse 25, <clears throat> these are ironclad promises that we have from God that describe the new covenant, a new promise that comes from Christ to believers. Here's what Jesus, here's what the ministry of the gospel is going to do for you the second that you trust Christ. He sprinkles with clean water our entire souls and our spirits. He gives us a brand new spirit that he will put within us. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. You are worshiping all of these other created things. I'm gonna cleanse you from that and I'm gonna ask you and I'm gonna enable you to worship your creator, to worship God instead. I will give you a new heart in a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will, or from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. 
That is how you will walk in holiness. Not by the law, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the deepest promises that we have from Christ. We've got promises that take us all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. Each one of them is perfectly fulfilled in the person of Christ. We have a promise that was given to Abraham that he will bless all the families of the earth through a progenitor of Abraham, through a Messiah seed that would come through the race of the Hebrews, through the Israelites. That promise itself is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. You've got a promise from Moses, even. If you walk in my ways, if you are faithful to keep the covenants, I will be your God, I will redeem you, I will be your God, and you shall be my people for the rest of your lives. That promise was fulfilled in Jesus. He was the one who kept the law perfectly. We've got promises to David, that one who is coming after you will rule on the throne of Israel forever and ever. This is the future David, the new David, that Ezekiel 34 talks about. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the promise that is fulfilled in him. And he is one that brings a brand new covenant to the people of God. And in that covenant, he says he will give us a brand new heart and a spirit within us that will enable us to walk faithfully, to keep the commandments, and to obey God. A couple points of application as we think about this great promise and this new heart that we have from Christ and through the Spirit. Number one, you will never understand yourself as a human being until you understand the depths of the heart. You will never understand your sin, yourself, and what God has fully done for you in the gospel until you understand the human heart. Theologians grapple with what it means to be a person in the Bible. There's several views of it. Some people say that a person is made up of three aspects, body, spirit, and soul. The body is the physical part of you. The spirit is inside you. It's your mind, your will, your emotions, your motivations. Then your soul is the eternal part of you, the immaterial part. Other theologians say that, no, it's not that compartmentalized. Actually, we are a complex unity. Uh, People, yes, we are body, soul, and spirit, but it's often difficult to distinguish between those things because when our spirit is off, our body is often off, and we feel it, and we're weak. We feel things in our soul that are related to our spirit, and so we shouldn't really try to divide this into nice compartments. Human beings are just one complex unity. Everything else is affected by everything in our bodies. And yet, there are still others who believe that human beings are made up of two things. There's a material part of us, our physical bodies, and then there's the immaterial part, the things that you can't see. The material part of us is physical. The immaterial is spiritual. The physical part is what you see on the outside. The inward part is the spiritual side of us, our inward being. The best term that describes who we are on the inside is this biblical term, the heart. Proverbs tells us that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That even the functions of the mind are applied in some way to the heart. One of my favorite first verses in all of scriptures, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your hearts, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. Paul Tripp says the heart is the real you, It's the essential core of who you are. 
So if you and yourself are a computer, your heart would be your motherboard. Everything goes through the motherboard. If you were uh, an engine, your heart would be the oil filter, perhaps. All of it cycles through and gets filtered through your heart. The heart is something that we can't change ourselves. We can ask our kids to behave, to act respectfully all, all we want, all day long. But as human beings, we will never be able to change the heart. This promise from Ezekiel 36 is so deep because it tells us that God is going to do for us what only God can do. And that is transform and completely renew our hearts through the life-changing message of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. Number one, you'll never understand yourself as a human being until you fully understand the biblical concept of the heart. Number two, Christ transforms people by radically changing their heart. One theologian put it this way, I think this is good. If we fail to examine the heart in the areas where it needs to change, our ministry efforts will only result in people who are more committed and more successful idolaters. Let me read that slowly one more time. If we fail to examine our hearts in the areas where it needs to change, our ministry efforts will only result in people who are more committed and more successful idolaters. John Calvin has a a statement that has resounded through church history. He says our hearts are idol factories. What he means by that is day in and day out, step by step, as human beings, we mass produce idols in our lives. It might be success, it might be achievement, it might be money, it might be popularity for you, it might be your social media page, it might be what your parents think of you, it might be your grades in school, it might be your performance at work. It might be your retirement accounts, it might be anything can be an idol of the heart. Even good things can become idols. Your spouse can become an idol when he or she is loved more than you love God. We mass produce idols in our lives. It is a default mode because of sin. Our hearts are idol factories because day in and day out, we are looking to something created to give us something that only God can give, an identity, security, significance, and new life, eternal life in Christ. Ephesians chapter one says this, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ The glorious Father will give you spiritual wisdom and revelation in your growing knowledge of him since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. And here's the truth of this passage. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, apart from the message of the gospel, our hearts are darkened because of sin. There is no light of life in us. Jesus came into the world as the light of the world. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is the one who enlightens us. He enlightens our souls. He enlightens our spirits to respond to the things of God. Apart from the work of the gospel, we are walking in darkness, day in and day out, stumbling over ourselves. Thinking that we can see physically, we can't see a thing spiritually. But the promise of the gospel is so deep and so significant. It's so simple, and yet it is so profound that Jesus, because of what he has done on the cross, he takes our darkened hearts 
and he brings them life, he enlightens them to see the truth of who he is, to have everlasting life. At Christmas time, the one thing that I, I couldn't finish up the sermon series without talking about an exchange, a great exchange, the exchange of our hearts of stone for hearts of flesh that are soft toward the things of God. I want you to think about that truth as you go from here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace to us. Uh, We thank you for the truth, the gospel, that you have done something for us that we can never do for ourselves. When we sin against you and our life apart from you is impossible to please you on our own power. There's nothing in and of ourselves that we can conjure up. There's no ability that we have to earn a right relationship with you. Our best efforts, Isaiah will tell us, are filthy rags to please you. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, when we come to you in faith and faith alone, you give us a brand new heart. You transform our hearts of stone and you give us hearts of flesh instead. I pray that our lives as we go from here, even this morning, reflect hearts that have been transformed, that have been enlightened with the truth of the gospel. Help us to bring this message to the people that we know who are so desperately lost and walking in darkness. Help us to be changed because of the truth of our identity in you, enlightened because of the cross and because of the gospel. It's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen.